Well, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to Exodus chapter 13. And we are going to be looking at Exodus 13, 17 through 14, 31, although this is part one of a message that I have entitled, Saved for God's Glory. Question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. And beloved, I think if we live the whole of our lives riveted on this truth, we would have a faith unsurpassed this side of glory. I am convinced that most of us in the church today don't think enough about God's glory or our part in bringing God glory. And one of the reasons for that is that God's glory is infinitely greater than our individual contribution in bringing him glory, as important as that is. I want you to think about the glory of God for just a moment. The glory of God is really interwoven through the Bible. It is really something that forms the origin, the content, the goal of all the scriptures. God's glory is literally his magnificence, his worth, his loveliness, his grandeur, all of his many perfections. God communicates, we know, his glory through his creation, through us as his image bearers, through his providence, and also through his redemptive acts. God's elect, that is us, respond by glorifying God. And we know that God receives glory through uniting his people to Christ, and then he shares his glory with them. The glory of God, beloved, really is a magnificent biblical theme. It is literally seen in every section of the Bible. It is in every biblical doctrine. It is in every Bible story. In fact, it is so central to Scripture that the story of the Bible is, in every sense, the drama of God's glory. And I think this becomes very personal to us as his elect because we know that first and foremost, we are saved for the glory of God. And therefore, everything that happens to us, every trial, every experience, every circumstance, every blessing, every pain, every joy is working together for our good and for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He said, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. So as we look at our salvation, we need to see our salvation always in light of the glory of God. Now to help us with this, we're going to look at a text of scripture which uh, takes us to the event of the parting of the Red Sea. And I know many of you are not familiar with that, right? (laughs) How many of you ever went to a children's Sunday school class? Okay. Unfortunately, this is a story that is so familiar to most of us that it isn't preached as much from pulpits as it is in children's Sunday school. But it needs to be preached because this is the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. It is the most famous event in the history of Israel, and it also has deep Christological meaning. In fact, I would say this, you cannot understand Christian history apart from this event in the Old Testament. And I say that because prior to Jesus going to the cross, 
The crossing of the Red Sea became the central act of God's redemptive history to save his people. And therefore, it isn't surprising that in addition to being found in the book of Exodus, this event is mentioned in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Psalms, in Numbers, in Isaiah, in 1 Corinthians, in Acts, in Hebrews, and it is alluded to in many other books. And while this is an epic narrative focusing on the redemption of Israel, the primary focus of this event is on God getting glory for himself. And nowhere in the Old Testament will you find a more powerful demonstration of God acting for his glory than in this event. And we're going to see that through the redemption of the Israelites that God uses this event to get glory for himself. And likewise, it's important for us to see that regarding our own redemption, we too are saved for the glory of God. And we often forget that. So this should affect the way that we live. This should affect the way that our faith is demonstrated. Now in the whole of our text, we're going to identify three acts of God in saving Israel for his glory. And from this, we're going to learn how God often glorifies himself through our salvation and what we can do to bring God glory. And today we're going to be looking only at part one of this message, which will take us from Exodus 13, 17 through Exodus 14, 14. And we're going to, this morning, look at the first two acts of God saving Israel for his glory. So the first act we see is God leading the Israelites into the wilderness, and he did this for his glory. Follow along as we read Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people." Now, we pick up the Exodus narrative, which is familiar to most of us, I'm sure, at a point where the children of Israel had come out of Egypt after 400 years of captivity. Now, it would be reasonable to think, wouldn't it, beloved, with all the Israelites had gone through, that there might be a speedy and painless and undelayed departure departure right back to Israel. You would think that God would have had them make a beeline right back to their homeland in Canaan. And the shortest route for that would have been along the Mediterranean Sea. And if they had gone that way, they could have been home in about three weeks. But that is not what God had in mind. Instead, we're told, he led the Israelites into the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And I think a quick geography lesson here will help us to make sense of this. 
You see, had the Israelites taken the shortest route home, they would have gone through areas that had Egyptian military outposts as well as territory that was occupied by the Amalekites and the Philistines. And so in verse 17, we see the reasoning of God here. He didn't want the Israelites to engage in war. He feared that they might get discouraged, that they might return to Egypt. And even though we're told they were equipped for battle, the Israelites were not ready for battle. And so with Joseph's bones in hand, Moses led the people down to a place called Succoth and then to Etham, which was down by an area that was known at that time as the Bitter Lake. So this would have been an area south by the edge of the wilderness. God led them southward towards the Sinai Desert instead of going eastward towards home. And in an incredible manifestation of his glory, he led the people by a pillar of cloud by the day and also by a pillar of fire at night. So they could travel by day or night. They had a divine headlight for night travel. Now the scriptures don't allude to this, but I am sure that some of the people began to wonder or grumble as to why they were now on such a circuitous route. How many of you have ever taken a wrong turn in your car? Okay, you right away you get annoyed, don't you? It's like, this can't be right. And I'm sure that they were wondering, why is it that we know the way home here and we're not going there? So I'm sure that they were wondering about this. They might have begun to grumble. The scriptures don't tell us. But nevertheless, God's leading really makes sense to us as to why he avoided a more direct route. And he just told us. And here's the thing, beloved, even if some of the Israelites were complaining at this point, at least they could say this, we are finally free from Egypt, amen? But God was not yet through with Egypt, and what he did next must have left the Israelites dumbfounded, and we read about it in Exodus 14, verses 1 through 4. So I'm going to begin by reading the first two verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. What we see here is in an abrupt manner, the Lord tells Moses, I want you to make a giant U-turn and take the people back to a place near Egypt. They were to encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, which literally is translated region of the salt marshes, between a place called Migdal and the sea, and this was in front of a place called Baal-Zephon. Now these cities, beloved, don't exist today, but in Moses' day they were very close to Ramesses, and Ramesses was in Egypt, and Ramesses was the head of Pharaoh's military and his headquarters. So God is saying, I want you to go back to a place right near where Pharaoh's headquarters, right where his military is. Now from a military standpoint, this is sheer lunacy. The Israelites were on their way to freedom, and now we see that they are headed back to a place that borders on their place of enslavement for 400 years. In fact, God led them now to the most vulnerable place that he could find. And in front of them, remember, there was nothing but flat desert wilderness with no place to hide. And behind them was the Red Sea. 
Now, it's unlikely that Moses had time to inform the people of the Lord's command to him. But listen, Military History 101 would tell you, don't camp here. This is the worst place you can be. This is the last place you want to be. But what we want to get a glimpse of at this point is there was something more important to God than the liberation of Israel. And that was his intention to display his glory and show that he is Lord. And God explains his reasoning to Moses in chapter 14 verses 3 and 4. And look at what he says. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. And they did so. God wanted Pharaoh to think that the Israelites' GPS went wacko. It went haywire. He wanted Pharaoh to think, what a bunch of idiots. They are wandering around the desert like a bunch of blind camels. What an opportunity. And concurrently, we know that God would harden Pharaoh's heart to pursue them and to recapture them with the intent of bringing them back into slavery. Now, let me say a quick word here about Pharaoh's hardened heart. Certainly, we know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was indifferent to the sufferings of the Israelites. He prioritized his greed and his comfort over the misery of others. And in spite of letting the Israelites leave Egypt, even though he had suffered through the ten plagues, he never truly repented. So we know that Pharaoh had a hard heart. God, we're told, hardened it further. But here's what I want you to know. Even if Pharaoh had not hardened his heart, God would have been justified in hardening his heart because Pharaoh gave defiant disrespect and disregard to the one true God. And I want you to remember Pharaoh's words back in Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Remember there that Moses and Aaron were commanded by God to go to Pharaoh and they said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. And in verse 2, Pharaoh answers. And he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let them go. So we see this defiance in Pharaoh. And now God is ready to show Pharaoh exactly who he is. And he would use Pharaoh and his army as instruments of his glory. So that all of the Egyptians would know that he indeed was the Lord. Now, beloved, I think we need to pause and reflect on this a moment. You know, when the children of Israel exited Egypt, it was really a high watermark in their journey. They had left Egypt with boldness and confidence. They were looking for the promised land. They thought, this is going to be a peaceful march back to our homeland. This is wonderful. But now everything seemed to be falling apart. And I want to suggest at this point, getting back to where they were, they were at a low ebb here. All of God's plans seem to be unraveling, and I can only imagine how exposed they must have felt walking back towards an unthinkable threat. And we're going to see it materialized later, but no doubt the Israelites were once again filled with fear and frustration at this change of course. And I think it's safe to say that most of us have had similar feelings. Some of us have been there, some of us are there now. 
And let me ask this question of you. How many of you at one point thought you understood God's plans and purposes for you and then suddenly everything seemed to unravel? Anybody in that camp? Man, did I see the hands in the first service. Maybe you're more spiritual than they are. We all understand that, don't we? We all understand. You experience a string of setbacks. You experience severe trials. You experience huge disappointments. And altogether, these things make you wonder, where is the Lord in all of this? Where is the providence in this? And how can I go on? What is God doing? Have you ever been so discouraged by a turn of events that in frustration you literally questioned God? You, you literally called God out? God, how could you let this happen? How could I get here? Maybe some of you have lashed out at your pastors. Thank goodness I'm not in that category. Or maybe you find in yourself a growing bitterness or cynicism. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, yeah, pastor, that's me, then I want you to know this. Listen, God is leading you today as sure as he led the Israelites in the wilderness. And we can't forget that. Remember that you plan your ways, but it is who that directs your steps. The Lord directs your steps. You may not always understand You may not always like what God is doing, but God is always working for your good and for his glory. And unlike you and I, God sees the end from the beginning. He sees the ultimate purpose of your life. He sees why he allows all he allows of things that come into your life. Listen, beloved, don't doubt the fact that God is leading you every second of every day. God is never far from you. And that's why we have to walk by faith and not by, and not by, right. Now there's one more important thing for us to consider here. When God's ways sometimes seem perplexing to you, I want you to remember this. God does not always work for your benefit alone. (gasps) You know, isn't it true? We often live and pray as though we are the only people in the universe that God is attending to. Don't we? And our prayers are I, I need, I want, I, 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 right? We live like we're the only people around. But often we're instruments in God's hands for the benefit of others or for some other purpose that God wants to accomplish. At times, beloved, God will put us in circumstances or trials or even difficulties for the primary sake of working in the lives of others so that he can glorify himself. And I think we often forget this, don't we? We can be very self-focused. I want you to consider Israel here. God is not moving merely for the liberation of Israel. Not merely for their benefit. He's moving to display his glory. To show both Israel and Egypt, he is the Lord. And if you miss that in this narrative, you've missed the whole point of the passage. If you were in expository preaching and you said anything else, I'd have to give you an F. I wouldn't really give you an F. And when things happen, beloved, that we don't understand... We have to walk by faith and not by sight. 
Like Israel, you and I are often the beneficiaries of God's mercy and providence. But listen, we are part of a much larger plan than our immediate circumstances. But as we know, that's often easier said than done. Amen? Yeah. So as we move on in this narrative, the Israelites are about to experience an epic failure in faith in looking to God and trusting him in their circumstances. So having seen God leading the Israelites in the wilderness for his glory, we now see that God also acts by sending Pharaoh after the Israelites, and he does this for his glory. We find this in verses 5 through 18, but let's look at verses 5 through 9 of Exodus chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea of Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. The scene in our narrative now shifts back to Egypt and the court of Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh realized that, listen, the Israelites have no intention of coming back, he changes his mind, he changes his heart, and he quickly reverses his decision to let the people go. Now, of course, we know that this was all initiated by God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh now regretted that he had ever let them go in the first place. And so he shouts, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? I mean, he's kind of lamenting here. We have just let 600,000 able-bodied, totally cheap labor people leave our country. We must be out of our minds. We had it made for 400 years. And now Pharaoh, realizing where the Israelites were, thought, I have got a splendid opportunity to correct my error in judgment. So he quickly decides to pursue the Israelites, not realizing that he was actually fulfilling the exact purposes of God. Now from a human perspective, I think this shows you the folly of human reasoning, doesn't it? Because we're on the outside looking in at this narrative. And when you read this, you want to say, Pharaoh, are you nuts? Egypt has just suffered through 10 horrible plagues. Your water was turned to blood. You were plagued by frogs and lice and flies and livestock pestilence. You were plagued by boils and hail and locusts and darkness. And lastly, all of your firstborn were killed. Earth to Pharaoh. Could it be that the God of Israel, Pharaoh, is trying to get your attention here? Do you not see his power and his might over you? But that's what a hard heart does, beloved. You know, when we harden our hearts, we sin, and sin is insanity, isn't it? Because it makes no sense. But we do it anyway, don't we? And there's Pharaoh. He disregarded the past plagues, the warnings. 
he recklessly ordered his army to assemble to pursue the Israelites. And he probably reasoned, look, yeah, God has touched all of Egypt, but he never touched my army. I still have my army intact. And this is part of my strength, my glory, and it has escaped destruction. So he said, I'm going to take my 600 chosen chariots, which were the battle tanks of that day, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, my horsemen, my army, and I am going to set out to slaughter or recapture all of this people who I think are completely lost, completely vulnerable. Now I have to believe that Pharaoh's commanders weren't too excited about this, but I have to think also that with a hardened heart, and he giving that order, they really had no choice. And the Egyptians, we know, soon caught up to the Israelites. They were ready to strike. But again, this was all according to God's perfect plan. The Lord wanted Israel hopelessly trapped. He wanted Israel in a place where there was no chance of escape. He wanted them to be the cheese in the rat trap. He wanted Pharaoh and his army to catch up, and catch up it did. And the Lord was about to get glory by working over and above human certainties of both the Egyptians and the Israelites. You see, Egypt was certain that the Israelites were doomed. And Israel was certain that they would be slaughtered. And they were both wrong. How many of you have been certain about things that never came to pass? You never say never in front of God. Amen? Now our narrative once again shifts back to the Israelite camp. And look what we read in verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now I'm amazed when I read this that there just wasn't a lightning bolt out of the cloud that led them and destroyed them all. I mean, you read this and it's almost like you're dumbfounded, aren't you? It's like, wait a minute, remember who's, who's leading you? But that's not what happened. They probably first noticed that the ground was shaking. Then they looked up and they saw the massive dust cloud produced by Egyptian chariots and the horsemen and the armies. And so now they looked up and their worst nightmare was coming true. And if ever there was a time that they should have looked to God, it would have been now. If ever there was a time to remember how they had been the recipients of so many blessings, how God had instituted the first Passover in Egypt, how God had brought the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, how God had caused Pharaoh and all the people to let them go, and how God had led them out of Egypt under Moses, now was the time to exercise faith. Think of all the great miracles that Israel had seen and all the blessings that had been bestowed upon them. This was a people, beloved, who were led every second of every day by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The very presence of God was with them. This was a time for faith. But whatever faith they had quickly evaporated into fear. 
The plagues were quickly forgotten. The Passover was quickly forgotten. Their miraculous exodus out of Egypt was quickly forgotten. And instead of looking up, they looked straight ahead. And they looked at their circumstances. They had the Egyptian army in front of them and the Red Sea behind them. Instead of looking to God in all of his grace and glory, the Israelites looked to their enemies and they became paralyzed with fear. They utterly failed the test of faith. Now I want you to notice this dialogue because this is important. You'll notice that we read in scripture that first we're told that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now we would err grievously to see their moment of panic through any kind of sympathetic lens. I say that because this same Hebrew phrase, cry out, was used back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 and it alludes to the fact that God had already heard their cry. That's why they were on the Exodus, amen? Amen? It was proof that God had heard their cries and therefore this sudden reiteration of this cry after seeing so many miracles in the plagues that befell Egypt coupled with all the events in the first 13 chapters of Exodus shows that this crying out was nothing more than grumbling and bitter complaining. And of course, this characterized much of Israel's behavior throughout their time in the desert. Listen, they were angry at God. They were literally shaking their fist at God. It's amazing God didn't kill them right on the spot. But listen, it didn't stop there. They went on to a lesser insult. Feeling betrayed, they turned on Moses. And they start with this bitter sarcasm. And they say to Moses, Moses, is this because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I want you to understand the sarcasm here. This would be humorous if it wasn't so tragic. Listen, graves to Egypt are like mosquitoes in Alaska. Have you ever been to Alaska? They can pick you up and carry you away. Listen, there were plenty of them. Egypt was grave central. The pyramids were graves. They never stopped building graves. It was a grave depot. And if you didn't know better, you would think the Israeli response here showed that God had hardened their hearts as well. Forgetting all they had endured as slaves, forgetting all God had done to bring them out of Egypt. They have the callous gall to suggest to Moses, how dare you bring us out of Egypt for this? If you'd only left us alone, we'd still be in Egypt. We wouldn't be out here just ready to die. And the irony of this is that God brought them out of Egypt, beloved, to serve him, and now they wanted to go back and serve Pharaoh. Their blindness of God's leading led them to consider that they only had two options. Either we are slaves in Egypt or we are dead in the desert. This was more than a loss of nerve. It was a lack of faith. The psalmist put it bluntly in Psalm 106.7 when he said they rebelled at the sea, the Red Sea. That's their legacy. They rebelled at the sea. Philip Ryken warns us, though, that we can often think the same way. He states this. We are often tempted to do the same thing. God wants to bring us all the way out of our sins. Our problem is that we only come out part way. We decide to follow Christ, but as soon as we start having problems, we get scared and go right back to our old ways of coping. Anger, addiction, depression, distraction. 
no matter how much we used to hate it, there was a security in the way that we used to live. So we return to the same old harmful friendships, the same old sinful attitudes, and the same old nasty habits. Does that sound familiar? You see, the Israelites did return to their old ways. They blamed God. They blamed Moses. But this complaining really shouldn't surprise us, beloved. I say that because when we feel betrayed by God, when we feel there is no way out of a situation when we are fearful, when we are in dire circumstances, when we are in the midst of suffering, isn't it true that we often blame others? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Moses blamed the people for his failure back in Deuteronomy. It's, it's what we do. I remember years ago, I was trying to move a heavy rock on our driveway and it slipped out of my hands and it smashed my thumb. And man, it was killing me. It was just, I mean, I really smashed it bad. And I ran in the house and Gail says, what's wrong? And I said, well, you're the one that wanted this stupid rock in the first place. <laughs> now that is not a way to get sympathy. I had to go get that thing lanced and I don't think Gail looked at me. She was like, ah, oh, you deserve to get it lanced. <laughs> but we do that. Aren't we all guilty of this at one time or another? Don't we turn often on those we love? Don't we say things that we often will regret later? Don't we make unwise decisions? Don't we act with desperation rather than wisdom at times? Don't we turn away from God all too often instead of turning towards him? You know, the Hebrews complained to God and they took it out on Moses. But listen, there is a better way to face life when we find ourselves in these circumstances. Listen, sometimes things do not turn out our way. We think it's full speed ahead and God orchestrates a sharp left turn. Anybody ever had that happen? We think God's will is here and we're on this course and then God just puts us way off in another direction. But listen, that's true. That's life for every single one of us. But the problem is that so often we go through times of disappointment and when we feel the securities creeping into our lives, our focus narrows down to this microscopic view. And like I said earlier, we have a tendency to see only our troubles, only our trials, only our circumstances, only our condition in the here and now. And we often think that God's universe and God's will really revolves around our prayers and our desires. We don't have enough spiritual peripheral vision. Beloved, listen, we need to widen our view. Wherever you are in life now, whatever your circumstances, listen, God has brought you where you are to reveal his glory. God doesn't always bring us to places of comfort. He doesn't always bring us to places where life is easy. He doesn't always reveal to us the what and the why and the when and the how. Many times he brings us to places that demand every ounce of faith and trust that we have. Sometimes God puts us in the wilderness and he backs us up to the sea. And like the Israelites, it may look like God has abandoned us, that we have no way out. But unlike us, God sees the end from the beginning and he has promised to never leave us and never forsake us. 
Now, as we continue in this narrative, Moses begins to reveal to the Israelites that God is about to do the impossible, that he is about to bring Israel redemption and Egypt destruction. And in doing so, all will know and believe that he is the Lord, and through this, God brings glory to himself. So let's look at our last two verses, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So here we see that Israel is standing, looking at the Egyptians. They are standing in abject fear. They're thinking about Pharaoh's intentions and plans, not the Lord's intentions and plans. And I mean, we get this to a point, don't we? I mean, they had been slaves for 400 years. They had only known Pharaoh's intentions day by day. They had the mindset of slaves. They probably had forgotten how to hope. And now they were caught between the Egyptians and the deep Red Sea. And you might think that Moses would show a little sympathy and compassion here, wouldn't you? I mean, this would be a place for for a little bit of sympathy. In fact, most people who will read verses 13 and 14 assume that Moses here now is offering soft words of encouragement. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Listen, Moses is now filled with righteous indignation. And so he issues three commands. He says, fear not, stand firm, be silent. And these phrases are referred to in the Hebrew as a negative imperative. And it is the strongest possible form of expressing negation in the Hebrew language. And therefore, when Moses told the Israelites not to be afraid, he was not comforting them. He was rebuking them. Moses wasn't saying, there, there, now it'll be okay. This was a reprimand. He was telling them to zip it. They had no right to be afraid because they had no reason to fear. You know, in reality, the Israelites were never in any real danger. What about us? Does perfect love cast out fear in your life? Are we ever in any real danger as believers? If we die today, are we in any real danger? No, because to live as Christ, to die is? To die is? We are never in danger. The Israelites weren't in danger either. They simply needed to stand firm and watch as the Lord fought for them. So Moses thunders, you're going to see the salvation of the Lord and all you have to do is stay quiet. The psalmist reiterates this in Psalm 46.10. I love this. He says, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes we get going. Anybody have this kind of life? How many of you are living this kind of life? Everybody should be raising their hands. God says, be still, be quiet, and know that I am God. And so Moses says to the Israelites, look, you're not to fight, you're not to defend, you're not to deflect, you're not to run, you're not to maneuver, you're not to surrender. You're to relax, you're to be still, you're to be quiet, because the Lord God is going to fight for you. Now that's where we're going to stop in our narrative today. But what can we learn and apply from this narrative so far? If there's one thing that I think we can take from this, it's that the same principles that we see here hold true in our salvation. Like the Egyptians pursued the Israelites' beloved, Satan pursues hard after us. 
When we came to saving faith, we came out from the slavery of sin and we came out from the bondage to Satan. We now serve a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we all know that Satan does not give up pursuit of us easily, does he? He comes furiously after us, tempting us to give up, to turn back, to compromise. And we're in spiritual warfare every day and Satan does not give up without a fight. We were once his valuable servants and he would love nothing more than to put us back under his employ. But in Christ, of course, we've been set free. And Satan's ownership of us is forever broken. So what should we do when Satan is chasing after us? Fear not, stand firm, and be silent. We need to remember, beloved, that the fight is already won. There's nothing for us to do to win this war. Jesus has already accomplished our redemption through the cross, through the empty tomb. He's done everything necessary for our salvation. He is the one who has atoned for our sin. He is the one who turned aside God's wrath. The Lord is the one who offers perfect righteousness as the gift of faith. He is the one who was resurrected and ensures that all his elect will be resurrected with him. What do we have to do to be saved? Nothing. Jesus has already done it. We just simply need to look to him in repentance and faith and trust in his finished work. And once we put our faith in Christ, what are we to do? We're to stand our ground. We're in a spiritual battle. And you know what? As such, the Lord gives us the same marching orders as he gave to Moses. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. When Paul says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, notice this, stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to learn from this, that in our struggle with Satan, we need to take our stand with Jesus and know for sure that God will deliver us. I love the way Charles Spurgeon explained this. Here's what he said. He said, I dare say you will think it a very easy thing to stand still. But it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, Stand fast, and having done all, still stand. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. Amen to that. Words of great wisdom. It's hard to be still and wait for God, isn't it? Especially when we're feeling like we're caught between the desert and the Red Sea. It's hard to stand still. Our temptation is to run away. Our temptation is to cry out in fear. Our temptation is to try to fix things on our own. But instead, God orders us to stand our ground because he is our defender. He is our champion. And when you and I are caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, all we need to do is be still and look for his salvation. And remember always that God is working in you and through you for his glory. Now, next time, I'm going to take us all into the water, right? And we'll see how this epic event ends. 
But dear ones, I know there are some here today who have never experienced an exodus from sin. Some of you sitting here today are still under bondage. And I want to plead with you today, listen, without Christ, your situation is hopeless. He alone is the way and the truth and the life. And in John 14, 6, we read that no one comes to the Father except through him. Listen, all men are born under the condemnation of sin and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And without atonement for sin, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in hell forever. But for all who look to Christ alone for salvation, for all who repent and put their faith and their trust in him, to those he grants forgiveness of sin and the assurance that they will be raised to everlasting life. Listen, if you're in a situation without Christ, then you are in a hopeless situation. No one else can save you except the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I plead with you again to call upon the Lord in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of your sins because it is Christ alone who offers a permanent exodus away from the condemnation of sin. And if you have questions, I will be up front after this service to talk with you. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer, should we? Well, Father, your word tells us that in this world we will have tribulation, and yet our Lord Jesus Christ gives us the sure hope that he has overcome the world. Our prayer is that you would strengthen us, Lord, and give us a faith to trust you in every circumstance in life, regardless of our understanding of of all things. And so, Lord, we pray for a firmness to stand in this world by remembering your promises to us and by remembering your faithfulness in working for our good and for your glory. We pray for such a trust in you that we realize that nothing in death, nothing in life can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, as we live under the shadow of your great glory, use us, we pray, to manifest that glory to others and to bear witness to your great name. And we ask all of this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.